0: I really can't say that the subject this morning is going to be extremely encouraging and uplifting because it's the subject of the wrath of God. But I do think it's a beneficial subject for us to consider. And in modern times, in a very general way, speaking in generalities across what, we, what is often called, and I'm using for those who can't see, air quotes, Christianity. This is a subject in the 20th and 21st century which is just not talked about because it's it doesn't suit the modern way of thinking about a lot of things. It is something the Bible talks about quite a bit. So I want to consider some things about this subject of the wrath of God, not just from a negative viewpoint, and this isn't meant as an attack upon anyone, but one that should clarify our thinking about the subject of God and spirituality and so forth. It's just like when you discuss the subject of evil uh, or why God lets bad things happen to good people. It's hard to make the point with some people that if they don't believe in God, then it's hard to say something is evil. They, they want to talk about God allowing bad things and they don't believe in God because of that. But if there is no God, just what is evil? Who gets to decide that? Well, obviously, from the 21st, 20th century, whatever dictator's in power gets to decide what he thinks is evil and kill people who don't agree. The most murderous century in the history of the world. Because of all these folks that don't believe in God. So, so if you don't defy, if you don't believe in God, it's very hard to talk about good and evil. And if you don't believe in wrath and the wrath of God properly defined, it's very difficult to talk about heaven and hell. Or heaven, at least. And salvation. There can be no discussion of salvation if there is no divine wrath because there's no need for salvation at all. And as we'll see, the sacrifice of Jesus becomes kind of an odd thing in the scope of things. So those who call themselves Christians but don't believe in talking about God's wrath uh, don't really understand how things work as far as the whole scheme of, of things. And in truth, theologically, they probably don't really believe in salvation very much because, as I've said many times before, and it goes along with this subject, You cannot be saved until you've been lost. Not possible to be saved until you've been lost. Not possible to understand feeling saved until you've felt lost. Understand what that is. And when we try to do that, it it muddies the waters quite a bit. Now I want to talk about just kind of defining what this is because I think first of all, we'll see as we read these verses. The wrath of God is not just about God getting mad and being a petulant child or somebody who throws around as the false gods did, you know, a lightning bolt at people he doesn't like, gets mad about something and decides to destroy a city because he got mad because somebody burned the toast. This may be human wrath. It may be your wrath. But that's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is about justice, about what is right, and about God's character fundamentally, All Any discussion about this subject goes back to the character of God and who he is. And in a profound sense, this is what is lacking and maybe always has been in Christians' understanding of the world, or even unbelievers' understanding of the world, is the true nature of God himself, his holiness. I don't have a lot of these scriptures up here this morning because I didn't want to make it any longer than it is, but the scripture's in many ways, present God as something completely apart from man. He is transcendent. His holiness, his own character is what is right. God doesn't have to decide what is right because he is what is right and good and pure. And his holiness, his separation from man is near complete unless God reaches down and does something about it, which he did. And so for us to understand that when we sin against God we choose our own way and we do what we want to do in defiance of him is to spit in the face of the one who created us out of nothing. And we don't understand that at all. We think we just have, and I think this is particularly true of Americans, there's no greater defender of the Constitution in this room than me. But the idea that we get to say whatever we want and we have a right to choose and do whatever we want and that should be okay. We had that last part I believe you have a right to choose to do what you want as a citizen, but I don't believe it makes you right when you do it. We confuse those words, completely confuse them. And so we spit in the face of the creator of the universe who made us, and then we wonder why we may end up seeing his wrath. See, because God cannot be with evil, cannot be a part of evil, and when we rebel against him, there is an immediate separation between us and God that cannot be bridged unless God makes the move because we have no power to bridge that gap. This is the fundamental basis of what the Bible says about man and God and wrath is part of that. Let's just go take a look though. I thought of this subject partly because of what we said last week and we talked about persecution last week. By the way, I want to thank those who came and not only paid for but installed the new TV. It's uh, really nice and I'm very grateful for that. Everybody here is grateful for those who not only donated the money to buy it, but those who installed it. We appreciate that very much. Don't want to say that publicly without mentioning names that people don't want mentioned, but uh, we'd certainly thank you for that. We talked last week about persecution and I made this point, I was, even, I was talking to my a couple of my brothers the other day, and I made this point again with them, and they looked like I was crazy. They look, gave me the same look you gave me last week. So there you go. Maybe it's me, and maybe it's not them. But uh, I, I said that we think that God should punish the United States and other wicked countries, Russia, whoever we may think is wicked today, China, because, because they have wicked, they do bad things. They don't treat their people right, and they do this and they do that. But that, that's not how the Bible says this will work out, at least in our time in history. The Bible pictures God destroying nations and kingdoms because they persecute his people. That's when it happens. So people can, nations can do bad things, and when they don't persecute God's people, God tends to in some ways leave them alone, let them walk their own way. Not entirely, but that's the tendency. But when they begin to persecute the church, he, he will intervene. And that's what I'm seeing happening around the world now. Even though many these people are not New Testament Christians, they think that they are, and they're trying to hurt God's church, even if they may not be hurting exactly his church. They're trying to hurt his church everywhere they can, these dictators and world rulers, and God will notice this, and he will take action. It may not be in the time frame that we would like, but we ought to be cautious about calling down God's judgment upon people because it will affect us and be very severe. So let's be careful about that. I know there's so many Christians on Facebook wanting God to judge, the, judge this country and I just hold my breath and say, oh my goodness, can I say that? I, I dread the thought of the true judgment of God falling upon this land because of what will happen and we'll be swept away. So many of you will be swept away, maybe even me. Here's what Paul, here's what Paul told the Thessalonians who were looking for the coming of Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Sounds like a wonderful church group of people. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Not only were they close to each other, but this church was enduring persecution and suffering. And he says, we thank you for that which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. This is going to prove to be evidence of God's righteous judgment. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Think about that for a moment. It is not a bad thing. When God decides in his righteousness to repay those who who persecute the church, it will be a righteous thing, not a vengeful thing not a spiteful thing not humans taking petty uh, retribution for little harms and slights that they feel this is going to be something that is right and good and God will take that vengeance and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That that passage is striking to me because it starts off, you're warned of a bunch of people and your love for each other abounds and you think it's going to be nice and sweet. Very religious sounding as what I might say. Ends up with the uh, flaming fire and God taking vengeance. Why does that happen? It happens because of God's righteous anger that people persecute his church uh, without thought because of their wickedness. And when God brings judgment, whether it's the final judgment or not, there will be a reckoning to be had because what he does will be right. When Abraham asked God, when Abraham found out that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham was astonished that God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and just wipe them all out without a warning. God would say, I gave them warning and they don't listen to me. So Abraham says, well, what if I could find 50 men? Or he bargains them down, I think, to 10. And Abraham still not can. And he asked God this question. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? I think it's a great question. I think that God was saying, yes, I will. Abraham had enough faith in God. That wasn't a, an attack on God's character. That was a statement of faith in God, more or less. I know that you will do right. So prove to me that you're doing right in this case. Show me. And God did show him that case. The judge of all the earth will do right when he brings persecution. I mean, when he brings judgment, divine wrath, whether it's on an individual or on a nation, it will be because it is right to do. Not, notice this passage in 2 Thessalonians. The next letter he wrote to this same church. Thessalonica is a Greek city. It's Thessalonica today, the it has maybe another name, most modern names, but it's still there in Greece. When he comes, it says, in that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testament among you was believed. So he's saying that he's coming back at his next coming to be glorified in his saints. That's why it's such a dangerous thing to persecute the church of God because God takes glory in his saints. We may look like a motley crew of, of worthless people, don't make any difference at all in the world. But to God, those who serve him, in faith, day, to, day by day, who put their confidence in him, who, who uh, like Satan said of Job, does, God, does Job serve God for nothing? Well, many of you serve God for nothing. You, you don't get anything out of it at the, as the world would see it. God notices that. Satan notices that you do that, whether you're famous or not. And God will not long tolerate when they are persecuted by wicked people. Preaching the word of God Truth in truth requires the preaching of wrath. There's no way that a person could stand, and whether it's teaching individually or whether it's doing the kind of thing that I do from week to week is preach publicly the word of God. I cannot actually be a faithful preacher of the word of God without preaching about the wrath of God. It wouldn't be possible to do so. And yet there are many people in the United States around the world and have for all down through time who have tried to be a preacher and set, call themselves that, who never preach about the wrath of God. It's always the love of God and the grace of God. Let me tell you something. The love of God will not shine like it should shine without the wrath of God. And the grace of God, there's no need for the grace of God. There's no wrath. You ever think about that? People love, they'll talk about grace, but there's no need for grace if there's not wrath. Okay. What's the point of grace? It's to save you from the wrath. So we have to understand that. Now, the constant preaching only of the wrath and not of the, tr- the whole gospel of Christ is a tragic mistake, and I'm not advocating that at all. But notice in Hebrews chapter 4 how God, how God is presented here to these Hebrews. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So there it is. People say you can't fall away from Christ. He's speaking to Christians here, and he warns them. Yes, you can fall if you do the same things that they did in the Old Testament and fall because of your disobedience. Now, disobedience is, is equated with unbelief, but unbelief in this case indicates not doing what is right. Disobedience is not doing what is right. It's not just thinking wrong thoughts, having wrong beliefs. It's not doing something that you ought to be doing or doing what you ought not to do. For the word of God, he says, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thought and intents of the heart. Now don't miss the point he's making here. He's saying that to divide joint and marrow is very difficult to do. Since most of you have never butchered an animal, and some of you are too squeamish to even eat meat with bones in it. Let me, let me make this more for you, for some of you uh, 21st century sissies. Uh, where does the where does the watermelon stop and the rind begin? That's a question. Me and my brothers talked about when we were kids because we would eat that watermelon sitting there in the backyard, no shirt on, covered in juice, spitting seeds at each other. We'd eat that water all the way down till it was plain old green, and then we'd stop. Well, I guess it. I'd, and we'd put the rind on. My dad said, "You ate you ate all the way down." You know, the adults are eating it and they're trying to decide where does the watermelon stop and the rind begin? Good question, is it? Well, the Word of God is so sharp that it can make that decision. It can. The Word of God is divisive. What you it say right away about the Word of God? And We've talked about this before in the book of Genesis. One of the first things it says, and God said, let there be light. And he divided the light from the darkness. What divided light from darkness? God's Word divided light from darkness. Old chapter. And he divided the seed from the dry land and the mountains. He divided everything up by his word. And in saying this, he says here, he goes on to say in verse 13, here's the part that bothers, should bother you about the wrath of God. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I don't think it's in our songbook anymore because it's way too old fashioned, too uh, retro what's the word? I don't know what the word is now. There's an all seeing eye watching you. Any of you old enough to remember the singing that song? There's an all seeing eye watching you. I oh, used to scare me to death when I was a kid. Whereas <laughs> I had lots of eyes watching me and big family we grew up in on the street I grew up in. But this says here there's nothing hidden from his sight, but everything is open and naked. We we think that we get to think our own thoughts and do our own thing and no one bothers no one cares and no and it's all private. We don't want things to be private. Well, and re, with respect to God, I hate to tell you my friend, I have to tell you as to, from the word of God, there's no such thing as private with God. You may keep it from me, you maybe you should. And you may have a right to do that. You may keep it from your spouse, from your children, but you cannot keep what is true from God. And this is where the understanding of the wrath of God should come right down home to you. That he is a discerner of your thoughts and your hearts and he will judge you for what you think and what you do. Now that's, a, that's the fundamental thing that we must understand about God. Any response I might offer, any invitation I might offer later in this sermon for you to obey the gospel of Christ will be based upon you taking that idea seriously that God knows the thoughts and intents of my heart whether anybody else does or not. And as you if you become a Christian and you try to live as a Christian, this is the thing that you must deal with. I know it's troubling to some. They want assurance that what that they can do what and think what they want now that they become a Christian, but I can't give you that assurance. I can tell you that God is merciful and just and kind. He provides you blessings every day and even with brothers and sisters to help you along the way. But in the end, you will still be accountable for what you do. You'll still be accountable for what you think and who you are. And you must make the right effort on your part as a human and God will make his effort as divine to change what's really going on there. This is the struggle of being a Christian and truth over time. Now, when we understand then, here's the contrast, the holiness of God, what his character is, his, 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 the distance between his character and ours. Men have always tried to bring God down to our level. You see. Instead of the Heavenly Father, they want to make Him daddy-o, you know. Bring Him down to our level. But the truth is that God's holiness is what demands His wrath. The holy character of God demands wrath against sin. Wrath, not just being a petulant anger because you did something I don't like and so therefore... I get to act any way I want to like, a, like some kind of a, a drunken father throwing arrows, or, you know, throwing stuff around the house because he's mad about what happened. That's not God. But he's wrath about his, your rebellion against him and your continued rebellion and you're sneaking around. My daughter Susan has this dog. Duncan. I know it's her favorite animal. I think she's had him before she had Brian actually. That dog is okay, except one thing, and I can't, we, he lived in my house for a while with me. That dog is sneaky. Okay? Boy, there's one thing I don't like about a dog. It's being sneaky. I've had boxers. They're just pretty open. Whatever they are, they are. You see, I can live with that. Okay. Our little pug is pretty open. That's sneaky. And you know, that's what we think we can do with God. We can just sneak around he won't see it. He won't care. But his part, part of his essential part of his character, of perfection, of holiness, and now, holiness means separation, set, being set apart. It doesn't mean without sin, although it carries that idea. It's the idea of being separated. Part of his holiness is his hatred of sin. And those who would rebel against God, they are not going to remain in his presence forever. The fact that he allows Satan to be in his presence even now, the fact that he allows us in his presence and doesn't destroy all of us is a testament to God's, to God's righteousness, a testament to God, his mercy, but his, his holiness demands eventually that all those accounts be settled. He can put up with it for a while, and he has, and I wonder how he can do it when I see the wickedness in the world. And then when I see the wickedness in the world and wonder how God could put up with it, I'm tempted to be reminded of the verse I just read from Hebrews that he sees the thoughts and intents of my heart. So I better be careful about what I wish for the rest of the world. Please understand that about this lesson. This is not about Christians being superior to everybody else. It's not about me or anybody else being better than everybody else. The point of the book of Hebrews is we all have to take a look at ourselves in comparison to God and, and we all are found wanting God looks at all of us and says they're all found wanting. But his moral perfection demands his hatred of sin. So A.W. Pink, who is a Calvinist, I know, but he wrote a couple of good books on the attributes of God and the character of God. Now, some of it's flawed because of, his, because of his Calvinistic ideas, but a lot of it is good as far as thinking properly about God. The wrath of God, he says, is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. God's holiness... Is stirred into activity or into action against sin. And that's what we call the wrath of God. And it manifests itself over time in various individual ways. We read about it in the Bible, individual things. When Nadab and Abihu refused to respect his word, offered up strange fire on the altar, God's wrath was kindled and he struck them dead right on the spot. Amen. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to Peter and the apostles, they were struck dead on the spot. This was the wrath of God being called into action about an immediate circumstance and also in mercy. He was being merciful in that he warned the rest of the people what to do about what they should do. Now, he doesn't always act like that. If he did, there'd be a lot fewer people in this church. Don't you think? There'd be a lot fewer people in the world if God always acted that way towards sinners and those who willfully disobey him. But his mercy allows him to put up with this stuff for a long time and give people opportunities and, and chances. And he sends his own son into the world. And that's what we're going to see about that in a moment, how his son coming into the world changes these things. But, but uh, the scriptures say in Hebrews 12, since we are therefore receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, For our God is a consuming fire. Now the interesting thing about this passage here is here you have uh, grace and reverence and godly fear and then the result of that is saying our God is a consuming fire. I think he may even have a reference to situations like Nadab and Abihu and their rebellion against God being consumed. So let's think about that as we approach our attitude toward God and his word and, and think about how we're going to live our life. That yes, our God's a consuming fire. So when we deal with God and when we speak of God, when we think about these things, let's have reverence and godly fear in so doing. Instead of irreverence and treating God's name in vain and, set, and doing all the things we want. We need to be careful about that because God is very concerned about doing those things. Now, The book of Hebrews also says in Hebrews chapter 10, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Now he's not talking to unbelievers and non-Christians here. So let's get that straight. I'm not just ranting against the world out there uh, doing what they do. That's true. But let's bring it closer to home. For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know, when you sin willfully in the Old Testament, uh, there wasn't a sacrifice for that as such. All that's left without this sacrifice is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace? This happens every day. All around the world... Uh, 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 all throughout human history but in particular modern times and he's saying it's even happening among some of you for we know him who said vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord and again the Lord will judge his people so here it is he'll judge his people and this kind of vengeance here isn't some kind of petty retribution somebody trips you at recess and so you know you you uh, think of some worse thing to do to them you know, I'm dealing with kids and I was a teacher and a, a dorm supervisor at college. I've in you know, all the so I've seen vengeance. Human vengeance. Human vengeance is some guy, you know, uh, uh ruins ruins your lunch. And so you go slash his tires. I mean, this is human vengeance. It always has to be a step more and it becomes petty. It's petty over things that don't matter in the big... T- but God's vengeance is not petty. It is well-deserved. It will be meted out appropriately. It will always be just. It's just... It's going, if, you, if you decide to wait for God's judgment before you do what's right, if you decide to lean on, I'm going to wait for God to judge me, I'll be fine with that, this verse is saying, Think again. Think again. It ends by this statement in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Before you decide. God's being unfair with me. I'll cast myself on God's. On God's justice and judgment. I can handle myself. Be careful. You have no idea what your sin looks like to God. You have no idea what an affront to God. You have been. Now. The scriptures also say God, God is separated from sin, as we talked about before, and opposes every sinner. Read this passage. I know it's a long one, another long reading, but I, I want you to be impressed with some of these scriptures. There's a lot of these in the Bible. I only pick, this is, this is probably, somebody else might listen to this sermon and say, he left out that verse. He put that one in. There's so much that'd be difficult to even begin when you talk about the wrath of God. But notice this in Romans 2. He's just got finished excoriating the Gentiles in chapter 1 for their immorality, their wickedness, the fact that they've walked away from God and they've abandoned him and all the other immorality, the kind of things in chapter 1 that we see in our society today leading up to the accept, widespread acceptance of homosexuality, for example, in Roman society, in Greek society. He, he's, that's what chapter 1's about. Then he turns his attention to the Jew over here on the side who standing there saying, yeah, let them have it. Boy, those Gentiles are bad people. And he says, do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, the ones things I've been talking about, and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? See, we can talk about how, we can talk about how that Gentiles, people who don't care about God, secular people, I won't name any you know, politicians and political parties, I'm tempted to, but uh, they we talk about how those people disregard God's word. God says, y- you do the same thing. Every week that goes by, these preachers that stand in the pulpits and blast the people in our society for being homosexual, every week that goes by, another one gets caught up in some affair or molesting children or whatever it may be. Every week that goes by. That's what he's talking about here. These people that spend their time blasting the people of the world for their immorality, like in chapter 1, and then they do what they want. He says, you think you'll escape the judgment of God? Because you call yourself a Christian? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Despise, look down on the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, that God hasn't already brought you to just, just, justice. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. See, we can talk about the wrath of God, and we are, but this passage is telling you that God holds on to his wrath. He doesn't dismiss He doesn't dismiss it and, and pretend it isn't there. But alongside the wrath, He has put dealing with human beings. Goodness and long-suffering and forbearance that we need to understand. This is what leads you to repentance, gives you a chance to repent. And he goes on to say, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who practice who are who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Oh, I didn't think it mattered what you did. Once you became a Christian, nothing matters. Well, doesn't he say here, this, this is going to be to those who by patient continuance in doing good things seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and there is no partiality with God. Now that passage says it plainly. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whatever nation you're from, you need, to, you need to cast yourself upon the patience and forbearance of God and not try to t- take on his wrath because he intends to judge the world. And you're storing up for yourself wrath when you continue in this sin. You know, Christ spoke of, I do don't—I didn't do a count on this, once again, it'd be a huge count, but we, we need to rush along here. But Christ spoke of God's wrath more than he did speak of God's love. He spoke about God's love. But from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he keeps talking about wrath and judgment. And all throughout his ministry, he talked about wrath. Here's just one case. Maybe I got a couple here. Uh, Matthew 8, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that the judgment of God? Is that the wrath of God? Yes. We haven't got time to consider the context, but when you look here in in Matthew 10, notice this. Notice what he says. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said that, and he's trying to teach you about the wrath of God. You know, the glory of God, de- demand, uh, the glory of the cross, I should say, excuse me, demands the, the preaching of wrath. But I want you to, when people, dis, uh, modern thinking, modern man thinks, and I'm talking about t- since the, maybe the mid-1800s, modern kind of thinking, uh, dismisses the idea of sin, as I mentioned many times before, that's the one word you cannot say if you practice in, in any of the psychological professions in our society. You'll be drummed out immediately if you ever say the word sin to any patient or client of yours of any kind. Sin. Can't say that word. It's been erased from, from human memory because it implies that there's a God and you might be judged for that. Very, very disrespectful to talk about somebody being a sinner or committing a sin to them. If sin is nothing, then I have to ask you, you Christians, of what value is Christ's death? Why did Christ have to die the death that he died and sacrifice being God himself as such if sin isn't serious and important? So the cross shows you clearly how serious sin is to God. And the cross shows you also how significant the wrath of God is. If the wrath of God, if punishment for sin, is not as serious as God says it is, if it's what we say it is, is nothing, then what's the cross mean? And that's why it says in Romans 5, that God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. So there it is. Here's the love of This great passage about the demonstration of God's love, while we were yet sinners, guess what word it has right there embedded right in it? The word wrath. It's embedded right there. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And what that, we could go on about that, but what that boils down to in the end is that a day of, a day of the execution of God's wrath is coming. This is what the Bible points to. Both Old and New Testaments point to this idea. This is someplace else where the thinking of the, the Christian, the worldview of the Christian is different than the worldview of those who are secular, our, as most people in our society are today. We know that history has a purpose and that it has an end. It's going somewhere, that Christ is the center point of that history, and one day he's going to close out that history of the world by coming again and judging the world. We know that history has a purpose that from the time of man's creation to the end, there was a purpose in that of God saving man. And it's all been that theater that's all unfolded. Now the world just says time is going on. They think from eternity or from way back there, it's going to keep going on. And they picture some time in the future when man's a godlike being and we're riding around like the Jetsons and so forth in our fancy cars and we'll, uh, in the sky and we'll all be great. It's funny how the Jetsons never really talked about sin, did they? Anyway, I guess not a lot of cartoons do, but seriously. It gave the modern idea that human everything in life would be better if we just had, had Rosie the robot in a fancy flying car and would all be better. Really? Is that what makes life better? Is technology helping Americans be happier, more fulfilled? Not according to any study I've ever I've seen, not at all. Because that's not what life's about. So yes, we can change political parties. We can change our ideas. We can do this and do that. We can get this technology, but it doesn't change what really is there, what really bothers you, what really is ailing you. Anyway, off the side. Acts 17, Paul says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That means turn around. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, there it is again, by the man whom he has ordained He has given them assurance to all of this by raising him from the dead. then you have this reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all, Christian, non-Christian, great, small, Jew, Gentile, whoever it may be, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There it is. That's what Paul said. The reason Paul preached the gospel was because of the terror of the Lord. Of course, the good news, the, the gospel is that you don't have to face the terror of the Lord. You don't have to face His wrath. You can be spared from that wrath. But, but Christians must prepare to face God's wrath. And so Peter says "Let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, an evildoer, in 1 Peter 4, or as a busybody, in other men's matters, And yet if anyone suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So it's going to start here with the people of God. And we need to realize that we can suffer for things we do that are wrong, and many of us do. But we need to stop suffering because we're doing wrong and only suffer because we're doing what's right because judgment is going to begin at the house of God and the truth is also the rest those who are not Christians must prepare also to meet God's wrath that's why we have this reading in the book of Acts in chapter 2 when Peter spoke to those people who were not Christians at that time now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what should we do And Peter said to them, Repent, and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And verse 40 says, And with many other words he testified to them and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Save yourselves from the wrath of God. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and in that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I appreciate very much you thinking about these things with me. And considering this subject personally, not as an attempt to scare you and, and, and to force you to do something, but to get our thinking straight about how we're going to approach the Word of God in our in our life and in our mind. And turn our heart toward Him. Turn our heart toward Obedience to save our God's judgment is coming. The question is, where will you be in that judgment? If we can help you this morning by baptizing you into Christ, you come down here to the front row. And we'll be glad to do that today. We can wash you as it's just pictured. This passage says, your sins will be forgiven. If this morning you need to realize that judgment will begin at the house of God, and come this morning. We'll pray with you. God can forgive and you can get back on the right track. Can we help you? Let's stand and sing.